It's sad how many Christians are content to have really a rather basic appreciation of their God, of the processes by which he draws Christians to himself. People are very intent to understand other things in the world, lesser things, at an almost microscopic level, yet their, their knowledge of God remains very simple. I've run into people who are coffee aficionados, and I'm not saying this to knock on anybody. If you love coffee, if that's your thing, but I've heard people talk at length about how certain coffees have like particular little notes, tiny little bits of flavors mixed in with the coffee flavor that they can, they can identify and enjoy as they have a cup of coffee. They'll talk about how you need to pour the hot water at a certain temperature over the grounds instead of, of, of letting it drip or you have to press it down. There's all these different ways to make coffee and people will spend hours researching how to make their coffee taste better. There are other people who are like that with music. I've met fans of the Beatles who listen to a song and they, they say, you can hear how the drums have changed because of Yoko Ono in this particular song, because of what was going on in the band at that time. Or they'll have, they'll have favorite, favorite eras of the Beatles music when things changed a little differently, or maybe they incorporated certain other instruments in to enhance the music. They'll know everything about each of the band members' background and history. They've done the research. They, they've, they've looked carefully into the history of the band. Maybe coffee's not your thing. Maybe music's not your thing. Maybe your thing is sports, and you can recite the names and stats of everybody on the team that you love. Maybe technology is your thing, and you can't wait for iPhone 16, which is two generations away, but that's the one to be really excited about. Maybe your thing is video games. I, I ran into a lady the other day who works at a, a video game shop in town, and she was talking to the customer in front of me about the history of Metroid and how important that is. And she had... The, the symbols for the buttons on the controller tattooed onto her fingers because video games are that important to her. Maybe video games is your thing, or cooking, or travel. We get so invested in these things that really when we consider the grand scheme of our existence and our meaning and our purpose are not all that important. But when we consider our knowledge of our infinite God and our understanding of the different aspects and elements of how we're to interact with Him, Christians are too often content to think only in very broad strokes and leave the finer details to the theologians, to the missionaries, to the professional clergy. But that is not what Paul has in mind for the Corinthian church, or for First Family Church for that matter. Paul knows the value of thinking about our God carefully and deeply. He knows the benefit of paying close attention to our God and he knows that a church that overlooks these details will be less healthy for their negligence of God's word. And so three aspects of our relationship with God that we often think very broadly about, that we might only have a vague understanding of, are mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 13 in such a way that it urges us to make distinctions and to pay attention to the details of what each means and of how each of these elements work together in the process of discipleship. These three elements or aspects of our relationship to God are faith, hope, and love. Love, of course, being the hallmark of chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. We have been learning from Paul already how to think more precisely about what real godly love is like. We've learned that it is essential that you can do things that seem religious and are practically beneficial to others, but if you do them without love, your work means nothing in the grand scheme of things. We've learned that godly love is active, that it acts in specific ways. It's not just a feeling that we feel or a thought that we have, 
But love is our obedience to God's word and the way that we follow after his command, trusting him. And, and, and when we love, that love will manifest itself in the way that we are kind to each other and patient with each other, in the way that we don't boast and we think of the needs of others before our own needs. We've learned that godly love is selfless, that it's not about a person's desires and passions as much as it is about wanting what is best for another person and desiring to help them to achieve that best. We've learned that godly love is enduring. It isn't temporary or disposable. It's something that lasts. It goes through the trials. It maintains its care for, for another, even though there are challenges and struggles that come along with that. And we've learned that it is maturing, that it brings us along and draws us ever nearer to God as we walk in this godly love. And this morning, as the Apostle Paul concludes the chapter, he's going to invite us to consider the priority of love, that even when taken alongside two other very important pieces of the puzzle of our connection to God, that love will prove itself to be even more important than these other important things. And so we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to start um, at verse 8, and we're going to read through to the end of the chapter today as we conclude this wonderful exposition of godly love. Love never ends, says the Apostle Paul. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Would you bow with me as we ask a word of prayer and thank the Lord for what he's going to teach us this morning. Lord God, we praise you for what we will learn from your word today. We praise you, God, that you are not just an academic God, that you are a God of life, and that the things that you teach us are not just so that we can show off knowledge to one another, Lord God, but they are so that we might be refined, that the way that we live and obey your word might make us closer to Christ, that we might enjoy our knowledge of God increasing and improving because we are practicing the very love that he has loved us with, that he has called us to love others with. And so we do pray this morning, Lord God, that you would help us desire to walk in such a way that the world around us will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the thing that we love and desire more than anything else is to be near to your Son, Jesus Christ. We don't desire personal glory. We don't desire a smooth and easy, easy path. What we desire is for Christ to be lifted up, Lord God. And we pray that that would be accomplished even through the preaching today and our response to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Pastor Paul preached on the permanency of love. Godly love is not fickle. It is not immature. It never ends. And though many things that we pursue and value will prove themselves to be of little eternal worth, even of little practical worth in the long scheme of our lives, we must not underestimate the value and the priority of godly love. Paul decides to compare love in verse 13 to two other virtues. He does not compare it to these things of the world that are fickle, 
to things that are trivial, he compares love to two other essential and wonderful virtues, to faith and to hope. Three virtues, faith, hope, and love, components of our interaction with God, each a fundamental aspect of our life once we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. We are told these three things that they abide. Some translations say they remain. So what does Paul mean to communicate by this? He could mean that in a logical sense. He could mean it logically. In other words, there are three more things we need to talk about here. We've talked about a lot, but we need to talk about faith and hope and how it compares to love. Perhaps that is what he's saying. Particularly to considering the argument that, that he's making here about the importance of love, the health of the body of Christ, and the use of the spiritual gifts, because that's the overarching theme that we've been dealing with here in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Uh, the Apostle Paul wants these Corinthians to exercise the gifts in a way that helps the body of Christ, not in a way that divides the body of Christ and hurts the body of Christ. So he could be meaning logically. This is the next thing we're talking about. These three topics still need to be discussed. But he could also mean it ultimately. In other words, is Paul looking past this life? Is he looking at the end, the, the very end, is he saying that these three things will remain after so many other aspects of our lives pass away? Is Paul speaking eschatologically? Is he looking at the return of Christ and his judgment of sin and his restoration of creation to, to be a new heavens and a new earth? Is he urging us to think of the final state that we are all moving towards? When something abides, it not only continues to exist, but it exists typically in the context of another thing. There can be an aspect of dependency intended in the use of the word abide. And I think that's why the translators of ESV chose abide over the alternative of remain. We are called to abide as Christians, aren't we? We're called to abide in Christ. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we see this concept being put forth by Christ to his disciples that those who love him must not just believe upon him, but they must abide in him. They are to trust in him in such a way that they dwell with him, that they walk alongside him, that he is in their sights always, that they are trusting in what only he can provide for them. And so we get the sense here that Paul is drawing attention to these three things because they should be front and center as we consider the appropriate way to express are abiding in Christ and manifesting that in the expression of the spiritual gifts. But in light of the finality of what is spoken just one verse prior in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the context dictates that Paul isn't just saying that there are three things to consider. I think he is urging us forward. He's making us think beyond today. Look again at verse 11. It says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that we don't enter into this world with all knowledge. 
We enter simple-minded. We enter with a misunderstanding of a lot of things. And he says, when I became a man, I grew up. I mean, I gave up childish ways. He put those things behind him as God matured him and gave him better wisdom and helped him have experiences that might bless his understanding of God and help him to walk more accurately in life. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So there's a progression that happens here. These two verses are talking about the progression of maturity. I used to behave as a child. It was appropriate to do so at the time, right? I think sometimes we say, act your age to a child. and We forget that that child's age is five. <laughs> and a five-year-old is supposed to ask 100,000 questions. And a five-year-old is supposed to forget half the things you tell them to do. It is appropriate for a young child to act immaturely because they are not yet mature. And so Paul says, I used to behave like that. I used to behave as a child. My speech, my thinking, my ways were all lacking knowledge and understanding. Mistakes were made, and I learned from them. And now as a mature man, there are aspects of my childhood that I have put behind myself. And I've graduated from some of the weaknesses of childhood, and I'm farther along the road because of it. But that doesn't mean the process is finished for Paul. We are still ongoing, progressive in the work of development and sanctification. The Lord would have us even holier if we dwell with Him and abide with Him. And so Paul says in verse 12 that now, after this maturing from childhood, now we see in a mirror dimly. Okay? He still doesn't have a totally perfect picture of Christ. He sees an impression of Jesus. He sees what the Word has revealed, but he doesn't see the fullness, the completion of the Lord God. We have a picture of what we need to know about the Lord, about our Savior, about the Holy Spirit. And we have a picture of what we need to know about ourselves. But it isn't a comprehensive picture. It needs more clarity. One day, and Paul points forward to that day, one day after our time here on earth is done, we will exchange the mirror for the real thing, for the actual thing. We will see God face to face. Our relationship to Him will flourish all the more as He glorifies us. That means that He brings us out of this sinful condition that we currently are in. Though saved, our bodies are limited. We still dwell in a world that is filled with deception and destruction. When we are glorified, He takes us out of this world and He brings us into a new existence where we can more fully appreciate the wonder and the beauty of our God. Our abiding in Christ will be exponentially enhanced when we are finished with this earthly body and this place through which we journey as pilgrims. That happens when we die. And so if you were able to come yesterday, we had a wonderful celebration of our dear sister Joan's life, who just passed away recently after two years in and out of the hospital, battling various ailments. Our sister Terry, her, her, her daughter, took such wonderful care of her through that time, and we're grateful for it. But we're also grateful for the greater healing that comes when Christ brings us out of this mess and takes us home to glory. So our sister Joan is perfectly healed today. Not only that, She's been glorified. The faith that she had before is now completed as she stands before the throne of her Savior. We, we are glorified when we leave this earth. There's another way to get there, right? We might be glorified one day if Christ decides to come back before the end of our life here on earth. If the Lord in His perfect plan 
determines that tomorrow will be the day, the day of the Lord, and He returns for us. And those of us who have not died of natural causes, those of us who have not gotten sick and passed away, those of us who have just not grown old and, and expired, we will then at that point be glorified as well. So I think it best to understand Paul to be thinking both logically and ultimately as he urges us to contemplate these three crucial aspects of our relationship with God. Now, why did Paul choose these three virtues, right? It's a good question to ask. There are so many aspects and elements of our walk with the Lord God that he could have spoken of, some of which he's already spoken of to a lesser degree in the verses leading up to this, but why did he choose faith, hope, and love? I think part of it has to do with the fact that these have much in common. All three of these are gifts of the Lord. We do not trust in God until He opens our eyes to the truth, right? We are not born Christians. We are born into this world with a heart that is tainted by the curse of Adam. We have sin upon us. We naturally desire to struggle against the things of God and break His law and His commandments. And it is not properly until the Lord God does a work in us that we can begin to look at Jesus Christ in a trusting and faithful way. We don't seek after Him until the gift of regeneration lightens our eyes and helps us to see the truth. So faith is a gift. We do not have hope until God grants us His promises. We might have something that looks like hope. We might have earthly kinds of hope, but that's not a lasting hope. It's not the living hope like Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1. We cling to different things in hope in this life before we encounter Christ, hopping from one thing to another, hoping to grab some sort of stability from the things that bring us a happiness or a smile or, or a sense of belonging. But ultimate hope is what Paul is talking about here. And you don't have ultimate hope unless you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. Ultimate hope is something we cannot enjoy until God brings us into this wonderful new covenant. And we can see that He has promises, that He has blessed us with, that His people have been given as a seal. They are not contingent on the people themselves. These promises are contingent on the perfection of Christ and His victory. And so these promises give us a living hope because we don't have to earn them and we don't have to keep them tightly. We don't have to obey Lord, the Lord to the right degree that we don't lose those blessings. These are the promises of the new covenant. And that is what our hope is based upon. They can't be stolen away from us. They cannot be forfeited if we are in covenant with Christ. So this is something God gives to us. It's not something we've earned. It's not something that, that we are, are meriting on our own goodness. And what about love? Is not love the gift of the Lord? When a person with a hard heart of stone who doesn't trust properly, who loves because they want to get something from others, when they encounter the living God and see the perfect love that He pours out upon us, a love that gets nothing really of value in return from us, then we learn what true love is and God gives us the capacity to love others in that way. Not in such a way that we might gain something for ourselves, but in such a way that He might be glorified in us, that the one who saved us and made us loving might shine in our lives. So each of these are gifts. And there's a second similarity between the three of these. Each of these virtues, each of these gifts manifest themselves in practical ways in the life of the believer. These gifts make an impact on the way we operate. We've spoken already about 
how love is an action, right? The believers will have a lasting love that manifests itself vertically in our love for the Lord God, and it also manifests itself horizontally in the way that we love one another in fellowship with the saints, and even the ways that we love those who are outside of the church in our community. This is true also of the other virtues. Love results in practical outloving of others. So too, the believer who has an enduring faith is not going to have not just an intellectual belief in God, but a faith that leads to obedience, a faith that leads to action, that leads to a reverence for the Word of God and a desire to know it so that we might follow it. So faith is very, very practical. It's not just a, a mindset. It's a mindset that leads to life. The believer will have a durable hope that manifests itself in tangible ways. How does hope manifest itself? In courage. And the courage to stand for what is right, even when we look different than the rest of the world. It manifests itself in joy, even in the face of struggling and hardship. Though the rest of the world might say, I don't know how you have a smile on your face. I don't know how you can't be pulling out your hair right now. Your life is upside down. And yet the Christian can say, well, it's not easy, but I have the love of the Lord. So my joy is not contingent on all these circumstances. My joy is secure. It is in my foundation, my cornerstone, Jesus, who is the rock of my very life. So hope manifests itself practically in courage and in joy. And though these three virtues have much in common, the Apostle Paul wraps up this section about love by showing us that love stands above these other two virtues. Each are important, but love is greater than the other two. So in order to get a proper idea of this contrast, let us first look at the two lesser virtues. Let's look first at faith. Faith is the providential gift of seeing God differently in a trusting way rather than in a skeptical way. Before God put faith in our hearts, whether we articulated like this or not, He was a threat to us. God was a danger to our autonomy and our independence. We had certain things that we wanted, and we didn't want God to come into our lives and say no or yes to things that weren't in our plan. And so before Christ puts faith in our hearts, before He causes us to believe, then God is like a threat to us. We are skeptical of Him. The classic condensed definition of this virtue of faith is found in Hebrews chapter 11, of course. And we look at verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is a posture of mind that leads to a confidence in the object of our faith. It is assurance of things that we hope for. And we're going to speak to hope in just a minute. But take note of that word assurance. That assurance element is really important. Our faith assures us that the trajectory that God has set us on is the right trajectory. Our faith assures us that we are on the straight and narrow path that He has laid out for us. Faith in Jesus, in His person and in His work, is what gives us confidence that the narrow way that He commands us to walk is the one true way. And it leads not to destruction, but it leads to glory for God. Hebrews 1, uh, 11, 1 also talks about how it is the conviction of things not seen. So we need to understand that faith is not entirely blind. It sees some things. Completely blind faith is a foolish endeavor. But it has, beyond a shadow of a doubt, enough reason to say amen to the object of its faith. 
that it will cause the one who is exercising faith to function under the premise that the object of the faith is real. Who's the object of our faith? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is a confidence that leads to obedience. As we see the Lord God seated on the throne, as we understand from His Scripture that He has a plan to come back and rid the world of sin, to create a new heavens and a new earth where we will enjoy His presence forever without the trappings of failure and selfishness and corruption, we have a confidence and a conviction that leads us to obey the Lord God and to walk in the truth. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6-7 through 7 says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home at the body, or we, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So assurance that God is who He says He is, and that He saves the way that He says He saves, leads to a conviction to stand up and to follow Him to do the things that God has commanded us to do, to operate our life and our being on the premise of our faith in the object, the object being Christ himself. Of course, there is more to faith than that, but this important aspect of faith ties in tightly with what Paul is trying to get us, uh, get us to understand here this morning. Though the object is not entirely seen, the person of faith operates as if the full manifestation of that object is to be unquestionably accepted. We know that he will do what he says he's going to do. And again, this faith is a gift, meaning that it doesn't originate with us. And that is why three, these three concepts that we're focusing on this morning are sometimes referred not, as, not to as virtues, but, but as graces. The three graces of 1 Corinthians 13. Because a grace is something that God gives freely, but a virtue isn't necessarily thought of in that same way. So I like when commentaries sometimes speak of these as the three graces of the Lord, faith, hope, and love, because they are unmerited gifts from our God. This is a gift, by the way, that keeps on giving. We see that by nature, our faith increases with time. And greater faith is something that we should desire. It's something that we should pray for. You can read about it in Luke 17, 5, where the disciples come to Christ and they ask that Jesus would increase their faith. They know they need to be more faithful people. They want more of what they have tasted of. 2 Corinthians 10, 15, Paul prays that the Corinthians' faith would increase and that so too their fear of impact in the Corinthian area might also increase. As their faith increases, their testimony to the world around them increases in proportion to it. Mark 9, 24, we read of the father who has a son who's in desperate need of healing, and so he cries out to Christ and begs for Jesus to supernaturally heal his son. And in that moment, he, he utters one of the most honest phrases in the Bible. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. So faith is something that we need help with. It's something that God gave us initially, and we must rely on Him to continue to give us this faith and to have it increase in our hearts and our minds so that our obedience might also likewise increase to Him. So pray for more faith, friends. Never be afraid to pray for more faith from the Lord. So faith is one of these grand virtues, but we also want to look at hope because Paul's about to contrast faith and hope. He's about to contrast them to love. So let's get a grasp on hope now. Hope is the confidence that we have in God's promise keeping. It is more than an optimism about the future. It is not founded on our own personal desires. It is founded on the integrity of God himself. Two weeks ago, we spoke about how love 
hopes all things. And we spoke about how, according to 1 Peter, Christian hope is not a dead hope. It's not a potential. It is something that is real and alive today. It is a living hope. And it's not founded on something that could be. It is founding on someone who is. This great I am is the one who endures forever. And so when he makes a promise, the hope that we place in that promise is not a hope that we will obey him properly or that we'll earn what he has given. It is a hope in his covenant making and keeping ability. He has declared it. It will be so. Our hope is therefore alive in so much as God is alive. Because our hope is founded on God, our hope is indestructible, church, because God himself is indestructible. So those who have put their hope in money are seeing their hope waver right now. And there are many people in this world that that's where they get a lot of their security from. They think as long as those digits keep increasing and the numbers keep going up, I'm going to be okay. But right now with how the world economy is going and the inflation that's increasing right now, cost of living going through the roof, supply and demand problems, those who trust in their bank account or in the stock market, they are on shaky ground right now. That hope is wavering. Those who put their hope in good health, they can't help but cower right now as the fear of COVID paralyzes so many of, in our population. It's, it's difficult to look around and see people suffering from this and even dying from it and to think, well, if, if my hope is based on my good health, how will I survive this? But when our hope is based on the promises of God, then our hope is not jeopardized by a pandemic. Those who put their hope in governments have much to worry about. As the leadership of this country and many others falters all around us, we see that we cannot trust in chariots or armies or in the leadership constructed of men or the ways of philosophers who think they understand life. Our hope must be in something more enduring than that. Fortunately, those who trust in the Lord have put a hope, have put their hope into something that will not waver, for it is based on better promises and a better promise keeper. This proper placement of our hope results in a peace, doesn't it? Results in a peace that surpasses understanding. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. It makes us insulated from the vacillations of the world as the world goes through periods of success and prosperity, then goes through ebbs and flows of of hardship and heartache and confusion. The Christian has a stability that endures through all of that. But when we think about the peace of God that surpasses understanding, it surpasses the understanding of the world for sure because the world can't understand how we can be so comfortable in Christ, how we can be so assured and confident that the future will play out the way that he has declared that it will play out. But it even surpasses our own understanding, doesn't it? Sometimes I don't even know how I can be so stable. All I know is that I trust in Christ and Christ is good and Christ is mighty. And people try to ask me for an explanation. All I can do is point them to the gospel. There's no practical reason why we should be calm and at peace when our body is falling apart or when somebody we love is in peril. But there is the great supernatural peace that comes to us from God that even we don't always totally understand. Both of these gifts are incredibly important to the believer, but what makes them inferior to love? What makes them less than this greater gift that we've been speaking of so intently for these last few weeks? Faith and hope, their importance is for a time, but the importance of love 
lasts forever. Our faith will one day become sight, won't it? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 7 says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We read this just a few seconds ago, but look at the words of that passage again. While we are at home in the body means while we're living in these material vessels by which we walk through the world and serve our God, while we are alive in the flesh here, we are in some sense away from the Lord. We have a necessity to operate on faith because Christ is here spiritually with us, but His physical body is not here with us. And His kingdom, though it extends to the world that we live in now, the perfection of it has not yet been revealed to us. And so we must operate in a faithful way. We have no choice but to operate in a state of partial knowledge. We know what the Lord has revealed to us, and the rest, because of God's character, we trust will be revealed in due time. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, describes the up-and-down experience of one who needed to remember where his hope and his faith lies. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, this is shortly after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. They're talking about the risen Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and, my, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then we see there in Thomas a, a, a faith, but it's a faith that is wavering, right? It's a faith that doesn't see the whole picture and he's, he's trying to make sense of it all. And then 20, uh, verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And so we have not benefited from the physical body of Jesus walking through life with us. We read the history of it, the truth of his time here on earth. We, we hear the testimonies of those who walked before us, who were alive at the time of Christ. But we don't have the benefit of seeing that physical manifestation of the Son of God Nevertheless, what do we have? We have a faithful testimony of what he taught, of what he revealed, and what God has provided for his church so that what portion has been given to us will be more than enough for us to walk not in sight, but in faith, at least for a time, right? Because when this journey is complete and our pilgrimage comes to an end, then what has for so many years been faith will be translated to sight. Because we will leave this place and we'll enter into the very presence of this God whom we have trusted and had our faith placed upon for so many years and we will see him in full. For now we are bound to live in the partial. For, knowing, for we, now we know in part and prophesy in part. That's what, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He's, he's speaking eschatologically of the realization of our oneness with Christ. Our knowledge of God here is quite limited on earth to the degree that our relationship to Him is primarily defined by faith, a trust in what we cannot see. 
But when our time in the material world comes to an end, then our knowledge of God will shift. Faith will no longer be the defining characteristic of our relationship, for we will see plainly with our own eyes the God whom we love, with whom we have a restored relationship, thanks to the victory of Jesus Christ. So faith will not carry the same importance and weight with us when we are in the presence of our God when the very light by which we see will be the light of Christ right before our very eyes. Likewise, our hope will become a reality one day. Though hope is critical to us now, at some point all those things that we hope for, that we point forward to, that we trust will happen, will come to pass. And so like our faith, hope is our essential companion until we're glorified, but at some point that's going to change. Romans 8.24, For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's a true, true argument from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. But it also points forward to the fact that one day we will see the Lord God. We will be face to face with him. We will walk with him in the new heavens and the new earth like Adam walked with him in the garden. And so that hope will be realized Second century church father Tertullian quotes 1 Corinthians 13, 13. He says, Rightly is love the greatest, for faith departs when we are convinced by vision, by seeing God, and hope vanishes when the things hoped for come about. But love both comes to completion and grows more when the perfect has been given. Some of you have, uh, have made an investment in a bond. A bond is where you take some of your money and you purchase a note from, uh, often from a governmental agency or from a bank. You purchase a note and you purchase it with an assurance, a guarantee that in a certain amount of years that what you purchased will come back to you with additional interest. So when those five or ten or however many years go by, you've waited patiently, you haven't had that money, but now the, the, the term is complete you take that note, you take that bond, and you turn it in, and you receive back from it what? You receive back from it the cash that that note says is owed to you. You don't then take the bond and put it back in your pocket because the bond doesn't mean anything anymore. It's completed its purpose. It's no longer important. You have the reality that the bond pointed to. So too will our hope function in the life to come. We have this hope now that will be realized when we get to heaven. Its importance will diminish because we will see the realization of those promises that we have rested in for so many years. So many things that are significant to us now will be in some ways completely obsolete when we enter into glory. The scripture tells us that as much as our marriages are important to us now, right? We're no longer going to be married when we get to heaven. We won't be married or given to marriage. Our hope and our love and our joy will be tied to Christ. The church will be God's bride. When you get to heaven, you're no longer going to have your kids in your own household. Okay, We are all going to be children of God and brothers and sisters in the Lord. I will no longer be your pastor. There will be no need for an under-shepherd when the shepherd is right there. The things that you assign worldly importance to will seem like garbage compared to the joy of being in the presence of the Savior. So with the coming of glory, many secondary things will diminish in importance and stature and some will pass away completely. 
But that is not the case when we consider the role that that third member of this triad is going to play in our lives moving forward. Love, love will not pass away at the completion, but will only increase. As I prepared to conduct the services for Joan Bell this weekend, I was a little bit overwhelmed at the thought of our sister shedding her limited flesh and entering into glory. Do you ever think about that, friends? Do you ever consider what it's going to be like to get rid of the limitations of your earthly body and its passions? I see some people shaking their head right now at me. I hope you think about that. I hope that it doesn't just happen when we lose someone, like when Joan goes to be with the Lord. I hope that we think about that regularly, about how we are grateful for what God has given to us now, but man, it's going to be amazing when we get to let go of this limited and flawed flesh and we get to be in the presence of our God. This should be on our minds as one of the driving engines of our hope. How the veil of our sight of God will be lifted. What is just a dim image in a mirror now will become crystal clear HD for us. How our understanding of God's glory will increase. How we'll be in awe as He speaks to us not just through the written uh, words on a page, but in person. And every word that he utters to us carries the full weight of Scripture. Think about that. Everything that God will ever say to you in eternity is like reading the Word. His, his Word is always absolutely true. How safe we will feel, seeing as well as believing that He is near to us, that we belong to His household, that we have a place at His table, how relieved to see the realization of his promises, the assurance of our place in his family, which seems to every Christian at times to be a gift too grand to be givable, too good to be true. But when we sit down to feast with him, to know that he loves us like his own children, consider the joy that will fill your heart in that moment. Will our love pass away then? Will it be done? Will it become obsolete somehow? Will it lose its usefulness and be replaced by some other virtue, it's ludicrous to think it so. Our love will have no choice but to endure, the object of that love being even closer at hand than it is today. And not only will it endure, but it will only grow. Unhindered by the corruption that tempts us to become lukewarm concerning God's promises, untangled from the weight of sin that hinders us right now and keeps us from loving Him perfectly, Will our appreciation for God not increase? Of course it will. The, the, progression, the progressive reality of the Savior, uh, uh, the progressive revelation of the Savior will increase by leaps and bounds as He shows us more and more of who He is and how deeply He loves us. His righteousness is a well without end and we will never cease to draw from that well. His might knows no limits. And for eternity, we're going to find ourselves safe in the shadow of His protective wings. His mercy is infinitely generous to those that He loves. And His love for us will by no means be stripped away, cast out by perfect love that sits enthroned before your very eyes. Moses longed to see Him. You remember that? Moses wanted so badly to see God and was granted only a passing glimpse of the back of God but washed spotless by the blood of the Lamb and filled with His righteousness, we'll be able to behold the full glory of God and not be undone by it. Can you believe that, friends? You will laugh at the doubts that used to creep into your mind. They will be so childish to you 
that you'll wonder how on earth you could have ever thought twice about the things that God has declared to be sure and true. You'll shake your head at the silly distractions that allow, you allowed yourself to think about and, and convince yourself were so important in your life. So important that you would set aside Christ for a time and pursue those other secondary things. You'll think that ridiculous. You might even think to yourself in heaven, I wish I could go back and redeem the time and drive deeper towards the immeasurable beauty that has now been finally revealed to me in this last day. Nothing else deserves our worship, church. And you'll be fully convinced of that when the object of your worship shows himself to you in the fullness of his majesty. Every image of Jesus that you've ever imagined will fall short of what he revealed himself to be on that day. Every second commandment violation will be proved to be an embarrassing attempt to creatively express a God through whom every created being has come to exist. Even though Peter and James and John got a foretaste of this glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember that? When he brought those three close disciples with him up to that mountain and for a moment the veil was removed and he shined in all of his glory, I don't even think that glimpse will compare to what they saw when they gave their lives in the pursuit of the gospel and the service of the church. When they were martyred, each one of them went into the glory and the presence of God and saw him in an even more full way because they were not hindered by their flesh. They were not held back by the weakness of their physical being. In that day, your faith will in some ways be expired, replaced with the face-to-face knowledge of God. Your hope will be completed and finished as the things that you have looked forward to have come to be realized. But your love, your love for God will remain. It will endure for eternity. And I can see no alternative, but that love become ever deeper and greater as time exposes you more and more to this infinite God. Commentator John Gill said of this passage, in, other, in the other world, faith will be changed for vision and hope for enjoyment, but love will abide and be in its full perfection and constant exercise to all eternity. Ought we to be excited for, for future things, church? Absolutely, the answer is yes. Should they make the present seem like a drab trial to endure in the meantime? The answer to that is no. Because love is not just a future thing. It's not just something that we hope for. It's present. And this speaks to the superiority of love over faith and hope as well because we get that even now when we consider the great love that God has for us. And we love Him with the love that He has given to us to love Him back with. And today, as we consider that current, present love that will only ever increase, That should impact the way that we serve one another right here and right now. The Corinthians had faith. They had hope. But Paul is urging them that they need more love for one another, especially in the way that they exhibit the spiritual gifts, that they should not use the spiritual gifts as some comparison thing where they show, oh, these guys have spiritual gifts that are are more outward and more recognizable, and so they should be heralded and given glory. We should envy them. No, he says, all of your gifts are important. You all belong to one body, and that body is Christ's body. So we receive the love of God and live in it. When we serve one another as members of the body, it is an expression of faith. And when we serve one another as members of the body, it bolsters our hope. As we care for one another, then we're cared for by those same people that we're caring for. And we encourage each other to this future hope that we can look forward to. But more than any of that, 
the spiritual gifts themselves are a current way for us to express a love that should never fade and will not become obsolete. Anthony Thistleton says, The teacher, the theologian, pastor, and evangelist become redundant in the sense in which their work is currently carried out. But learning to love, to have respect and concern for the other above the self, is grounded in the nature of God as revealed in Christ. And this will never become redundant, obsolete, or irrelevant. Faith, hope, and love. These things remain important to each of us today, but love, love is the greatest of these three. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer, God? We thank you for your amazing grace, and we do ask, Lord, that you would overcome our weaknesses, that you would be refining us to be ever more like Christ. Lord, we thank you that love is not something that we will one day experience, but it is what we have experienced even now through the person and work of Christ, and that in the years and ages and eons to come, Lord, that love will only increase. Your love for us is perfect. It needs not increase, Lord, but our love for you will increase as we uh, become ever more sanctified and as we mature in our understanding of how great you are. And so we thank you, God, for these promises. Please continue to stoke the hope and the faith within us that is essential for this journey. And let us be grateful, Lord God, that we have this opportunity to love you and to love one another. Let us not neglect that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.